The Jericho Network on Westwood One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk. I am your host, Mitch LaFawn, and I have got a prog sort of episode for you today. We've got a lot of Genesis going on. We are going to talk with guitarist Steve Hackett about his upcoming tour, Genesis Revisited, Solo Gems, and GTR 2018 Tour de Force. Uh, We are also going to talk with uh, Steve about finger tapping and sweep picking. Yes. And um, for added pleasure, added fun, we are going to head right over after that to Anthony Phillips, who was the original guitarist in Genesis and the man that Steve Hackett uh, replaced in the band. So we've got Steve Hackett, we've got the man that he replaced, and just because it is Christmas time, uh, I'm going to give you a Canadian artist of incredible stature, the one and only Bruce Coburn. He has a new album that came out in 2017 called Bone on Bone. We talk about that, but we also look back on his history. He has been with us in terms of musical production for uh, going on 50 years now, uh, quite frankly. And he's just absolutely delightful. Um, I remember sitting back in the day watching Lovers in a Dangerous Time and uh, If I Had a Rocket Launcher on Much Music. So there you go. Not going to add much much else to the discussion today. Just going to get right into it. Let's get right over to the one, the only, formerly of Genesis and GTR, guitarist Steve Hackett. We are speaking with guitarist Steve Hackett. The new tour is Genesis Revisited, Solo Gems, and GTR 2018 Tour de Force. It'll be heading to Quebec in February and Montreal specifically on February 11th. You can find all the dates on Hackett songs.com steve a great great pleasure to speak with you today nice to talk to you too mitch yes it's been it's been a couple of years but let's let's get it let's get right into this tour and then maybe we'll start talking about some of the past as well but what can fans sort of expect because here you're going to do this the the 40th celebration or anniversary of the album please don't touch which in a sense was your first solo album after you left genesis are they getting yep. the entire album? Is it like sort of an album tour show, or is it the greatest mm-hmm. hits? Or go ahead. No, I've so far I've resisted the urge to do an entire album. <clears throat> um, I tend to cherry pick and, and, and get the best of, of things. Um, for instance, um, this year, two thousand and seventeen, um, I did a whole bunch of things from Wind and Wuthering, but I, I didn't want to do. Um, the entire album because I just felt like doing the strongest stuff live, the stuff that I know works in front of audiences. And so the same thing with, um, with please don't touch, um, 2018 will be its 40th birthday. Um, and I'm doing the title track, please don't touch, but I'm also doing, um, a track that Richie Havens recorded with me, which was, um, Icarus ascending. And I know it works well, we did it a couple of years ago with Nad, Nad Sylvan singing it, and um, there were times when he sounded remarkably similar to um, 
uh, to Richie, who was a wonderful, wonderful singer. Um, I swear he was channeling him. And um, yeah, um, so I'm looking forward to uh, to doing that. But there are a whole bunch of other things from other albums as well. So um, I would say perhaps half the set is, is solo, half is Genesis. And with a nod to um, GTR, the band that I had with, with Steve Howe, in the mid eighties. And, um, so we play when the heart rules the mind, which I've just re-recorded as it, as it happens. Um, and, um, yeah, and it's, it's been really, really good. I'm halfway through a, a new album as well, which I hope will be ready towards the end of, of next year. Uh, so I'm a busy boy. Yeah, you really are. And uh, just before we, we move on, you, you did mention uh, Win and Withering, which of course uh, celebrated 40 years, I guess this year, 2017. But in January, you're releasing Withering Nights Live in Birmingham, which you recorded earlier uh, this year. Just uh, quickly talk to me about that new release and what folks can expect from that. Uh, yeah, um, well, Wuthering Nights really um, celebrates uh, many of the tunes from uh, Wind and Wuthering, which was released um, originally in 1977. So 40 years later, um, I was doing a whole bunch of things from that. Um, the tunes that I remember off the top of my head were uh, we did um, 11th Earl of Mar, uh, One for the Vine, and they, those ones are both big, long tracks. Um, we did um, Blood on the Rooftops, which is also on that DVD and Blu-ray. Um, um, in That Quiet Earth, Afterglow, uh, there might be one or two others. Yes, there's Inside and Out, which was recorded at the time of the of the Wind and Wuthering sessions, but didn't go on the album. Although Tony Banks and I have both gone on record and said that we feel that, um, with hindsight, that should have gone on the album. I think it was arguably stronger than the rest of it. But you know, back in some of those other tracks, but you know. At that time, when you were dealing with vinyl, you had a limited amount of, of space, and and now you would think of nothing. You you wouldn't worry if you stuck on an extra track now like that, and um, it's awfully good. And we were doing fine versions of that, so we are going to play that live again, inside and out, because it's it's a it's a kind of hidden gem, but it's something that the band did did very well back in the day, and and the band, my band. I've done a great version of that live, which you can, which you can hear on that on that DVD. So, um, looking forward to that being out. Yeah, so am I actually, and, and it's got uh, well, like your touring band has uh, Nad Sylvan on vocals, and that guy's just fantastic. Yep. And of course, Nick yes, Beggs, which which many of yep. us know from Kajagoogoo. But uh, yeah, just to talk to me quickly about those two. Yeah, well, uh, Nad is is Swedish, and um, funnily enough. Um, Working with him, he's put me in touch with a number of, of uh, Swedish guys. Um, uh, Ruina Stolt was on in, 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 in the band for a while of Flower Kings, who's a fine guitarist in his own right and um, and band leader. Um, and we're going to be working with Jonas Reingold. So Jonas, in, uh, to pronounce it in Swedish, Reingold, who's a legend amongst um, uh, the bass-playing fraternity. He's going to be touring with us next year because... Um, uh, uh, Nick Beggs will not be with us this year, but he tends to work with us in every other year. Uh, Nick, and so um, looking forward Nick. to touring with. Yeah, he's great. You know, he's uh, he's quite a personality, 
Um, and uh, yeah, you're quite right. You know, he started out with with Kajiguchi, but you know, he's he's a, he's a virtuoso player and um, oh, no abs- slouch. Absolutely agreed. Yeah. And and I loved him back in that time. In fact, I inv- um, I interviewed him back in the uh, Kajiguchi yeah. days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me move on. You mentioned new music that you're working on. New music. You just put out the Night yes. Siren in 2017. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about the need to create new music because we all know that you could throw your name up on a marquee and do an you know an entire set of GTR and, and Genesis and whatever else and and yep. the crowd would show up anyway. Um, what yes. keeps you motivated and and moving forward musically? Well, I think it's less the need to have hits, although some people might say that's sacrilege, you know, for a commercial artist. Um, it's less the need to do that than it is the chance to um the way i see music it's a little bit like the guys who are still doing it um there are many guys who've hung up their spurs and i was having this conversation with with royner and he said um this is royner start he said i think it's about the guys who are still in the game now you know the guys who are still in the game at this point are the guys who you know, go at it with a passion, you know, with a will and, and and with a passion because they can't really think of themselves doing anything else. I mean, you know, there might be a moment where suddenly someone will turn up unexpectedly, you know, uh, next to a world leader or, you know, doing something charitable or suddenly showing up in a, in a Hollywood movie and doing a, a guest spot. But... But still, I think for most musicians who are still in the game, there's this thing that that music is the the oxygen that they breathe. It's the it, it is the drug. It is um, an aspect of love that cannot be. Um, it, it just has to be honoured when when the music lights, um, and if that's at three in the morning, uh, she's got to be honoured. You know, if you get a great idea, you've simply got to write it down at three in the morning or if you're late for an appointment or something. And music takes over your life. Um, But I'm very happy that that's been uh, the case for me, if that answers the question. Yes, it does, in fact. And and, and what I find interesting in that is about, you know, getting up at three in the morning and do... Most rock stars that I speak to always say that their next album is going to be their greatest album. They haven't written their 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 best album yet. Is that something you feel that that the best is yet to come, or do you look back and say, no, you know, please don't touch was it, or please, or you know, when, like how, how do you see that in terms of um, accomplishments? Well, I think um, I think artists. I'm going to generalize here. I think artists view it somewhat differently uh, than fans. I think, mean, for instance. Uh, when I saw Paul Butterfield, great harmonica player and singer that, that he was, leading a band that had Mike Bloomfield, who worked with Bob Dylan, um, I think before he was working with Al Cooper and, and all those people. When I saw that, I thought, this is wonderful, this is the best blues thing I've ever seen, uh, and it's heading into progressive stuff as well. In the mid-60s with a mixed-race band, uh, when there's riots in Alabama and all the rest, you know, showing that it's possible what people can do when they work together. That, for me, was a kind of perfection. Um, and so everything that Paul Butterfield did subsequently, I was always looking for 1966, whereas, of course, the artist is 
is moving on because we must. Um, so it's at whatever point you hear something and say, oh, you know, King Crimson's finest hour, was that 1969, as it was for me, or was that not necessarily the inception of the band, but how the band and bands uh, developed. So, yes, you <laughs> ask Darwin, you know, where does it start with with the original cell, the original impetus towards movement, or does it does it is it what it evolves to? Um, and I suspect that, you know, audiences see it differently. Yeah, you know, for me, Beatles, Finest Hour, somewhere around Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Um, and um, perhaps throw in a Magical Mystery Tour as well. You know, this, when the band started to work with orchestras, when it became truly weird and wonderful, and uh, any music that's full of surprise, whether it's current music or whether it's vintage it doesn't really matter. Yeah, you're right. And and fans, by the way, can be very frustrating. Uh, you know, when you put out a new album, they go, oh, it doesn't sound like the one you put out in 1975. And then you do one that sounds like 1975, and they say, oh, he's not moving forward. And it's like, oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> well, yes, I, I, I think that, um, I think any any act that is still listened to after all these years is very lucky to have an audience in the first place because I've I've known very talented guys who have given up uh, for one reason or not for laudable motives like supporting their families and what have you but I've been lucky to to um, still be making a noise for a living this is what it comes down to so that's what links me and every other uh, musician you know whether we're head banging in the cot or whatever we're doing. Uh, we're still making a noise for a living, and that's that's what motivates me. Yeah. Now, uh, now you mentioned headbanging, which is, of course, a term for heavy metal. Um, finger tapping yeah. and sweep uh, picking are these two styles of guitar playing that are very much sort of tied into the heavy metal genre, but you're sort of the innovator yeah. of both, uh, and yet I wouldn't describe you as a heavy metal guy. Uh, uh, talk to me about sort of the, the inventing of finger-tapping, because we all look at Eddie Van Halen and said he did it. Yeah, yeah. But you were like three, four years ahead of him. Yeah, well, I was doing that in 71. You can hear that on um, the uh, Nursery Crime album. You can hear that on, 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 uh, on some of the solos and some of the introductions. And, um, and um, I think it was a way of making guitarists sound more like keyboard players, um, and at that time, of course, um, keyboard players were itching to sound like guitarists. So with the advent of synths, suddenly Tony Banks was saying to me, um, I've been dying to be able to bend notes for years, and now I can because I've got a synth. And there's me thinking, yeah, well, I want to be able to do the octave jumps that um, keyboard players can do. Um, and uh, and why not on, on, on one string? So um, um, J.S. Bach plays his part with this you know, trying to play a phrase from Toccata and Fugue and thinking the best way to do that would be on one string. Why don't you do that? Why don't you tap, turn the fretboard into a keyboard, in, in other words. So um, we try and emulate each other. Somewhere in the middle, there's, there's the perfect instrument. Are, are you surprised that it's sort of the, the heavy metal genre that, that took it over? Because, you know, you're considered more progressive and progressive is yeah. more experimentation, and here sure. you are experimenting with the guitar back in '71, and yeah. it's it's all the metal guys that sort of took it. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, just to contribute to the glossary of terms or the, or the dictionary is, um, is what it's all about. And, um, uh, I mean, I've enjoyed heavy metal stuff. Um, but you know, techniques come and go. I think, um, maybe it's something that I think I heard Pete Townsend say, um, which is, you know, you can either write a good song or you can't. Um, all of these other things are in the armory. Um, but technique alone won't get you through. Um, there has to be, there has to be something more. So the acquisition of technique, I think is a, is a logical consequence of playing perhaps dangerously or even playing correctly if you're learning with a, with a teacher. Um, uh, but whether you're making your own, own rules up or you're following uh, another person's, it, it doesn't really matter. There's so many different ways of, of doing this. Um, but, um, you know, guys like me can't, can't really help themselves. Um, yeah, I often wonder what it would be like if I, if I did a, a heavy metal album. Um, would I get the, the, the sanction of the heavy metal crowd that I've influenced? Or, you know, would they be saying, oh, you know, he's not being true to his progressive roots, which means this pan-genre approach of including so many styles and, and having surprise. So, yeah, I could do an album full of you know musical salvos which by, which, by um, the way i would say you probably should i mean at this point in your career yeah, maybe it doesn't really yeah. matter what anybody says i mean it doesn't, 40 it doesn't years matter. on I, I, maybe I, maybe i should just you know say uh, this is the tastelessly fast album just to show that it's that it's possible um the, the and do something that is 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 pure technique and shredding and all the rest and um uh yeah funnily enough our um, the, the the record company is Inside Out in, in Germany that I'm signed to, but um, in England it's Century Media, and Century Media, the mainstay is metal. Of, of their record sales is 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 metal. So um, if only I could get the sanction of, of of a metal player that I've that I've influenced, perhaps, um, and go, you know, <laughs> it would be great, wouldn't it? I, yeah, I think it'd here be, we go, you know. Let's sound like a teenager again. Here we go, you know, yeah. hot to trot. Yeah. I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned two things in yeah. that answer. You mentioned uh, nursery crime, and you also mentioned, you know, uh, going out on the boundaries and being sort of on your own. Is that where, where it got to you when you got to Voyage of the Alkalite, where you were in a band and you just thought, hmm, what would this sound like if it was just me? What was sort of the motivation to step out that first time? Well, um, Genesis was about to lose its um, first lead singer, which was Peter Gabriel. For those who think that that um, Phil Collins was the first and arguably the only you know lead singer of Genesis, but um, Peter Gabriel was was um, was the first. And when he said he was going to leave, basically nine months before he completed the. Um, touring obligations with the band um during that time i thought well i haven't managed to talk him out of, of, of leaving and um nobody knows what the band's future is going to hold and a number of us are headed off to do solo projects um and i thought well up to now you know i've needed um this kind of composition by committee approach which is what genesis was um i need everyone's sanction to be able to get the tiniest of ideas through and um the idea of doing a whole album means you've got to be captain of your own ship 
you've got to take it on the chin. You know, if you go in and try and do an album and it just turns into a bunch of outtakes, um, that was always going to be the danger. So I, I probably wrote and came up with more ideas than I needed. And um, I was writing very quickly suddenly um, without the, the, the sanction of anybody. And luckily I had two guys in the band that were prepared to help me. Um, uh, Mike Rutherford agreed to play bass on it, and um, and Phil Collins um, said he'd do drums and, and percussion and vocal on it. So it came out as a very... Um, uh, well, I, I think it's an extraordinary album. Uh, I was working with other people, you know, who had um, great uh, technique. It was the first album that my brother had recorded uh, professionally, so it was his debut on flute, and flute was a big part of, of that album, and not in a kind of um, Jethro Tullish kind of way. It was much more the sound of, of a concert flute player, or flautist, if you prefer that term, and um, he sounded magnificent from the word go, so it was a team effort, and I'm still very proud of that that team effort, and um, occasionally I play things from it live, and it yeah. still sounds good, goes down very well. Yeah, it really does. Uh, and then just, uh, you mentioned nursery crime. Um, Anthony Phillips, a guitarist for, for the band before that, steps away, you mm. step in, yep. fill the void. Um, yep. Does the band say to you, hey, listen, we like what Anthony's doing, just try to do that, or are they saying, hey, man, we got a, a whole new thing here with you, give us what you're, you know, were you accepted as part of the band, or were you just like, hey, just, just re- record what we tell you and, and be nice? Well, no. Um, I, I was invited in as 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 as, as a full partner, um, as a writing partner with the band. And um, initially, when we were out there live, we were, we weren't doing new stuff. <clears throat> we were doing the band set that had preceded me, and largely the stuff that they'd done with Anthony Phillips, who subsequently became a great pal. And we've recorded things together. Um, um, and there's more of that to come in future, but um, yeah, you know, um, um, yeah, I, I, I was invited to write. So once we'd done the album, halfway through that first year, um, we were then performing that stuff live. So it developed over time. We, we influenced each other, and um, um, gradually over time, I, I started to write more and more, and uh, and I'm still very proud of it. Yeah, it's a great album, and it, and it's hard to believe that we're only a few years away from it being 50 years old. I mean, holy mackerel. <laughs> Time flies, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, um, yeah, 50, yeah, 50 years can, can go uh, go by in, in the blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've learned that. Um, GTR, but just before, because we're, we're, we're going to run out of time, but you are going to be doing sure. a, a GTR song on this, on this upcoming yeah. tour. Um, yep. Just talk to me about that band. I mean, it had a, a great promise. It had a great billboard success, and it f- yes. flamed out just as spectacularly. Um, yeah. Upset, disappointed, happy to have it in the back catalog. I mean, how do you look back at those sort of year and a half, two years with with great pride or great like, oh boy, we really screwed this up. Well, I was I was very proud of. Um, you know, certain things that we recorded. Um, it was a great band. Um, funnily enough, I just re-recorded When the Heart Rules the Mind, and um, which also has Steve Rothery on it. Um, and um, it's very interesting the way things 
have, have, have developed. Um, so um, when I look back on it, yeah, I think um, basically um, I, I saw myself as, as a solo act after Genesis. And we, we made the album um, and um, we had great success with it in America. Lovely to have a gold album. Um, um, but um, you know, financially, it, it was it was a very hard act to uh, to support. Um, so I, I think economically, hard to keep you know that hard to keep that that show running with the kind of business that we're doing, where it was doing great business in the states and and um, wasn't setting the world alight on this side of the pond. So um, um, unless we'd all moved to America. Um, there were other things in the pipeline. Yeah, and and you know what's remarkable about the success in America is musically it was sort of on outside of what was going on. You you know the the, the heavy metal hair metal scene was going, the Duran Duran's New Romantics, yeah. and all that stuff was going. And here yeah. comes this yeah. album, and yeah. it was sort of the, the 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 square peg in the round hole, and yet it sold, and people loved it. So you know, yeah. Well, I think we showed that two guitarists could do it, and um, uh, as I say, I still think that, that, that when the heart is a really good song, and I think that it it um, somehow it was mainstream and it was pop and it was rock and it and it managed to combine all those things, um, and um, yeah, I'm 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 still proud of that. That's I think where I yeah. sort of nail my colours to the mast still and say. Um, uh, I don't apologize for the commercial success that, that that had. I was very pleased with that. Yeah, and nor, nor should you. And then we'll finish on this since the uh, tour is going to focus uh, on the Please Don't Touch material, or, or fo- part of the focus will be that. Uh, just looking yep. back at that album, um, yep. what's sort of your, your biggest memory of that sort of second solo album? Um, well, I was recording part of it in, in, uh, in, in California, um, and working in some wonderful studios at the time, uh, Cherokee um, and uh, the Record Plant, and um, working with a team, a kind of Anglo-American team. Um, uh, there were a number of, of uh, Afro-American uh, uh, artists on that, and I was looking for a hybrid style of what would it be like if an English guy got together with Richie Havens with his magnificent voice, uh, Randy Crawford, who was singing with the, the Crusaders, Street Life. Um, that's how most people still know her, I think, in the States. And um, uh, Chester Thompson. And um, you know, having that mixture of, of, of styles. So it meant that when I, I came to do... Um, a ballad on that tune called Hoping Love Will Last. Um, Chester instinctively picked up uh, uh, brushes instead of sticks. Had it been, a, a, I think, an English player, he probably would have picked up sticks and made it sound very progressive, but actually it started to sound more jazzy, um, more like a kind of enlarged trio, really. Um, so there, w- there was that you know there was uh, the influence of, of, of american music but then there was also the influence of of Eric Satie, a french impressionist uh stuff at the turn of the century um 
And so it combined a lot of things and was really like a like a personal sampler album, a little bit like, um, I don't know if you remember, towards the end of the 60s, um, CBS had out two albums, sampler albums from a, a whole ton of acts um, called The Rock Machine Loves You. Yep. And it, it had Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Grateful Dead, Roy Harper, I seem to remember, Tim Rose, um, a whole bunch of of acts and, and, uh, and Leonard Cohen and every act sounded different but it was still both those albums were great albums and I thought well I wonder if I could make an album like that myself where uh, no one really recognizes the same team or even the same writer all the music is very uh, there's no center to it it's all tangential um, but there'll be moments of, of fusion there'll be moments of as I say the, the American stuff which drew on on soul stuff and orchestral stuff and and uh, many different styles uh, so I was trying to be very ambitious I wasn't thinking of myself as a, as a singer as much as as uh, being the, the, the writer the, the, the producer and I had this great team we had some great studios we did half in California we did half uh, back in England we were working early days of computer mixing and um uh, it, it was a tremendous, a tremendous adventure, um, and so yes, I'm celebrating uh, some of that on the on, on the next on the next tour. But we're also doing you know, things things from other albums as well. Right. So there'll be there'll be fifty percent Genesis. There'll be fifty percent um, my stuff. Uh, some some GTR. But I'm I'm drawing from a number of different eras and a number of different bands. Yeah, and just to, just to finish, uh, Chester Thompson, uh, to have him on Please Don't Touch after his work with Frank Zappa and, of course, later on with Genesis, just a solid, solid drummer to have used. Um, oh, fabulous drummer, and, he, and, and, and not only did he work with Zappa, um, he'd worked with Weather Report as well, so, you know, the pedigree was, was extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I see that we're, we're, we're out of time, but thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure. Look forward to the show in Montreal. And uh, Thank you very mer much. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Mitch. Cheers. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Hey, rock fans. Mitch LaFon here from Rock Talk. Uh, let me talk to you about True Car. There is something about TrueCar that a lot of people don't know. Using TrueCar can also help you buy a used car. In fact, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from TrueCar certified dealers nationwide right now. Whether you are looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers you, discounts off the list price for used cars, and offers a better buying experience through our True Car Certified Dealer Network. So let me emphasize that. There are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. You will see what other people pay for the car that you want so you know what the fair price is and can feel confident. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can also easily find the new or used car that you want. Again, once you register, you will see a real price on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by a TrueCar certified dealer from 
an actual vehicle in their lot. It's pricing you'll see before you going to the dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. TrueCar shows their customers all of the available incentives before they arrive at the dealership. And over 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by TrueCar certified dealers nationwide. And there are over 13,000 TrueCar dealers nationwide or certified dealers nationwide. So there you go. Folks, if you're going to buy uh, a new car or a used car, when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. There you have it, folks. Uh, my interview with Steve Hackett, uh, formerly of Genesis. Just great to hear him talk about those techniques, the uh, finger tapping and the sweep picking. Um, a lot of people associate that stuff with guys like Eddie Van Halen, and they're the originators. But really, if you look back, Steve Hackett was doing it on a Genesis album, as he mentioned, way, way back early in the early, early 70s. So there you go. Um, Let's get right over to Anthony Phillips. Anthony Phillips is, of course, the original guitarist in Genesis. Steve Hackett did replace him. Anthony has been going on in a career of uh, library music, and uh, he's been re-releasing stuff, and just a lot of great um, conversation to be had with Anthony. So for fans of Genesis, this is my prog episode, and for fans um, of rock, here is a great story of a great guitarist. Here is... The one, the only, guitarist, Anthony Phillips. We're speaking with Anthony Phillips, originally of Genesis, but a solo artist now going on, well, it's going on 40 years now, in fact. It is indeed, actually, if you think about it, yeah. I mean, well, I left Genesis at the ripe old age of 18 and a half, and, um, you know, I'm, um, I suppose my solo career started um, in 17. So, yeah, so it's a 40-year solo career. Terrifying. Yeah. Geese and the Ghost is 40 years old. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And some of the material, actually, is almost like getting near a 50, actually. Well, we'll talk about all of that, but let's let's talk about this album here, Slow Dance. It's been uh, reissued, you know, remastered, deluxe edition. Uh, talk to me about the work on that first um did you uh, have any part in actually doing the remastering and the the redoing and the uh, and all those, or did you sort of just ship it off to a company and said, "All right, let me see what you got"? Well, it's sort of in between the two. I have a very very good team around me. First of all, Jonathan Dan, who runs my website. He's um, I call him my sonic sleuth because when it comes up to the re-releases, he goes to the archives and finds miraculously uh, music which is contemporaneous to the time to the particular project and um, either uh, uses mixes as they are or does a certain amount of remixes and so John is absolutely vital on the extra material because um, we feel that if you're asking somebody to buy something again you've really got to give them something quite significantly extra it's really only fair and I hope we've managed to do that with all the re-releases. And on the 5.1, I'm very much in touch with the guys. I know them very well. I go through a lot of their agonies because it's, it's, like it's like rebuilding a house. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare, actually. But, uh, you know, it's eureka when you get there. And some are more difficult than others. But Slow Dance was very intricate, 
very difficult to recreate. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have some of the outboard gear because you didn't record all the effects to tape. And there's all sorts of questions coming back and minutiae of balances. And, yeah, it's a hard process. So I'm sort of in the middle. I'm, 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 I'm available for consultation. Which is good. Now, it is described as one of your finest albums. Do you consider it to be one of your finest pieces of work? And if so, why? Well, I mean, I'm a pretty hard taskmaster with all my stuff. You know, I, I never feel it's as good as it could have been or should have been. You always have this mythical idea of how in your head of how something should be. I think the longer you spend on something as well, the more that happens. Because whilst you're driving towards the final thing, at the same time, you're often feeling, mm, maybe this isn't what well, this could have gone better. Should I have gone down a different route? So... Um, I always end up by feeling disappointed. And uh, I always tell people, have a two-year-old, don't listen to something for two years. And after two years, you will probably have forgotten the things that really worried you. Um, I found that with the, re- with the re-releases, that the first time, the first couple of times you listen to things, most of them you think, oh, that's not as bad as I thought. Oh, that's quite good. But then, in- then in- inevitably, the things that began to worry you before start coming back. So I, I'm not a great judge of my work. I mean, I think there are parts of slow dance that are quite emotional and do work quite well um there are other parts which i feel a bit more critical about but uh, hey look it's not what i think it's what the audience think isn't it yeah at the end of the day it really is um talk to me about making instrumental music over uh music with vocals what is sort of the the your difference in approach in the instrumentation because you know with uh, a vocalist, you can you need a, a guitar part to sort of highlight a vocal, or it has to lock in yeah. with a drum part. Instrumentally, yeah. how how is that for you? Well, it depends, I suppose, if it's a sing, if it's a short instrumental piece, or if you're talking a big a big instrumental project. I mean, if you're talking of the difference between a song and an instrumental song, if you like, I right. suppose without getting too without being too simplistic about it. I mean, you've got to have a great tune. If you look, look back to The Shadows or someone like that, you know, they had Hank Marvin playing a great tune on top of the rhythm. So that was just the alternative, really, to the singer. But when, you, when you're talking about long, intricate um, instrumental pieces, I mean, let's, let's kick off, because it's the best-known one of, of this genre with Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. You know, you start off at the beginning, and you hope that at the end... What you started off at the beginning and what you started out with sort of makes sense because, you know, if you put it on again, and that's, that's, I suppose it's really kind of like a novel, isn't it? You've got to hope that things flow and that what happens towards the end makes sense from the beginning and vice versa. So you do plow off into, into the dark, really, because you've got two things. You've got to get flow, you've got to get overall flow between the sections, but you need to have an overall shape to the thing, which isn't, isn't, isn't obvious between different sections so um i would say um i mean obviously there's a lot of pressure on getting a good song getting the right right arrangement but it's a it's a one you know it's a one option thing i think the flow of a long instrumental piece is really really much more much more challenging yeah it really is uh explain the difference that between library music which is sort of more of music that is meant for backgrounds, uh, for, for the lack of a better word. Um, talk to me about composing that, and, wh- and how did you get into that? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, during my... I mean, I unfortunately timed... This is quite well known. 
I time my return to the to the music business um, uh, very um, very badly. Um, Goldmine said of the geese and the ghosts that when it came up that virtually no even prog people didn't like prog anymore. So I fell into the middle of punk, and obviously the geese and the ghosts had its had its diehard fans who still loved uh, that kind of stuff. But you know it was not fashionable. It wasn't cool, and a lot of younger people really weren't sure which way to go. So. I found myself quite quickly not able to make a satisfactory living from from my album. So I had to look around and I tried various different things, you know, songwriting for other people. And I did some commission TV programs. But those were often, you have to be lucky with commission work because often it can be quite badly paid and you get people that want the earth. And then, you know, and I remember somebody, somebody, somebody saying to me, yes, can he make it sound more like Sibelius? And I remember thinking, well, yeah, sure. If you give me an orchestra, what are you talking about? Um, and library music was originally um, very much more sort of down marsh, I think. It was associated with lift music. But things have changed completely. I mean, if you think of Getty images and all the fantastic photo images, library music has really become the musical equivalent of that. Um, called production music now basically so many programs are done so quickly they don't have time to to you know the equivalent of sending a photographer out uh, commissioning a poser coming in and doing it all you know and he might be precious about his stuff and the editors have great freedom of course with the with the computer the modern uh, sophistication of computers so they can take a whole mishmash of music pre pre recorded music with nobody standing over their shoulder and saying oh no you can't do that with my work and they can create a tapestry around music with nobody. And I've had pieces of library music used where I've seen them edit something so it looks as if it actually fits like a glove to a scene. I mean, the one discipline with, li- with a library track is that what you cannot do is, as in prog, suddenly go from a sort of a fast 7-8 section to a quiet acoustic guitar piece. You've got to, you've got to give them something which is basically sort of one one mood, one idea which develops and has a certain amount of sync points or the rest of it, but doesn't fundamentally suddenly change change course. Is it um, creativity, creatively, the creativity, I should say, is it the same thrill as creating for, for Genesis back in the day or for your own solo albums, or is it more just, let's just pump this out and move on to the next one? Well... Um, it's an interesting point that one actually because I don't. I'm very lucky because I actually don't write like that. What I do is I'm always ahead of the game. I have been for a long time here. What I do is I go into the studio and I get a whole lot of sounds, new sounds, exciting sounds. Because you've got to remember, we are working now with the most glorious sounds in you know, the virtual instruments. You know, you get these things through, and they're just absolutely sumptuous. So I range, I work in quite an old-fashioned way, which I have a number of different keyboards, a bit like, you know, the, with the sort of typical Rick, Rick Wakeman look at it. But the reason for that is that what I'm doing is, I'm, it's almost like a sort of, um, I'm going to say quite an orchestra uh, in motion, in, 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 um, in sort of live free, free flow, as it were. But it can be a lot of different instruments. So, for instance, one keyboard, I will have maybe a bass line going. Another, I will have um, a chord sequence going. And on the other, I'll add spot effects. So what I do is I improvise. I get I load loads of sounds in, 
I, and I respond to the sounds with the first thought that comes into my head. And anybody will tell you, as with vocalists in their first take, and often the first take, what you first think of before you get too self-conscious is often the best thing. So I do this and I record. I just go in there and I just throw mud. I, I continually change the sound. I do the first thing that comes into my head. So it's very inspired. A lot of it's complete rubbish, but then I have to go back through it. And it's like looking for hopefully little bits of gold amongst all the, all the gravel. And occasionally you come across, when you come back, if I do a couple of weeks, maybe months of this, I come back and I pick out pieces. And then these pieces are stored away. And when a project comes up, I, I offer the pieces. I, I fit pieces to projects because I don't right. get asked to do something generally really weird. You know, people don't say to me, can you give me an album of Ethiopian water design or songs or something? You know, they say, well, can we have some stuff which is... Um, you know, moody, atmospheric, uh, that kind of stuff. And so I'm nearly always able to provide stuff that was recorded, that was written, as you were implying, in an inspired way um, and not just churned out, as you were implying. Right. Um, yeah, because, you know, when I, when I uh, did my master's at, at, at university, uh, creativity was one of my fields of study, and, and I just... Oh, right. It was always just it's always interesting to me to see that creative process. Um, let me take you back real quick to to the Genesis days, and, yeah. and we're not going to go through the whole thing. We know you left, we know why, but you know you're 14 years old. You pick up a guitar or whatever it is, and you you want to be a rock star. And you're 15, and you're finally there. You make two albums. You're on the road. At what point do you decide this is not for me? And and where did that come from? Is it a, a, a fear-based thing? Was it just, you know what, I just want to wake up and watch Saturday morning cartoons and not be, like, talk to me about the decision, but where it came from. What was sort of its, its genesis, if you want? Well, I think, I think you have to, I mean, regardless of the stage fright which I suffered, you have to look at the life we were living. Um, because whilst, you know, our friends were having a year off between school and university and then going to university, and, you know, it's well known that people at college, okay, so they have to work harder now, but in those days you didn't have to work very hard. You know, you spend a lot of the time at the union bar having a good time. It's a very social time. We lived an incredibly ascetic life. We lived in a cottage in the middle of nowhere and taking all the equipment into a bread van, driving up and down the country um we didn't despite being middle class kids we didn't have the money to stay anywhere so we drive all the way back again we never really saw any friends we never we didn't go out to dinner with people or people often said to me well you know what was nick drake like did you get why didn't you have supper with him no we didn't do that we all just said goodbye after the show loaded the gear and went home again so it was a very isolated time uh, and there was a lot of pressure on the guys who had girlfriends as well from the, from the girls because the girls never really saw them. We were absolutely determined and ascetic, and I, mean, I think that created a good group, and it created a good, strong sort of fighting force, but it wasn't terribly good for the friendships, and it uh, probably wasn't terribly good for one's health. And I got... Uh, I'd had glandular fever before I went into the group, which was... Um, kind of ignored I, I kind of ignored it and you have to be careful with that you know you have to sort of eat and sleep well and all the rest of it and and uh, you know despite uh, our best offices of our road manager we weren't really you know we were dossing down on people's floors in the middle of nowhere in the middle of winter and stuff and uh, yeah I mean I started getting chronic stage fright so the decision to leave was really kind of forced on me I mean I 
I didn't really talk much about the stage fright because, you know, a lot of people don't because it's, it's frightening. And I was too young to realize what was going on. But then my body, my body sort of broke apart and I got bronchial pneumonia, which actually wasn't as bad as it sounds. It wasn't like as bad as the, as the glandular fever. But I was kind of shot by that point, really. And I think I was pretty disillusioned because life was just very lonely. You know, the, the relationships of the groups had sort of, I would say broken down, but I can't honestly say that the friendships had got better. It was, it was fairly strained between a lot of us. And it wasn't a lot of fun. The idea that there were groupies and all the rest of it. I mean, the reality of life on the road uh, before you're famous. And I mean, when you are famous, then you've got the press and all the um, the pressures of, of trying to be brilliant all the time. So it's a life which has a lot of illusions, I think, bound up with it. I think it's no surprise that the guys, the three guys all got married very, very young. Uh, considering the tendency to marry slightly older nowadays, not slightly later, because, because you know that there was, um, you know, they had to. That, that, that was probably the only way they were going to keep keep the women, really, because the, the, they weren't seeing enough of them, and um, they needed the security. So, you know, whilst I admire the guys greatly, I think it was a pretty lonely and pretty punishing existence. Is the stage fright something in the years or since then? Uh, that you've been able to overcome because it, it is sort of, I don't want to call it a panic attack, but it, it, it is debilitating uh, to, to many people. Is it something that you've managed to uh, get over? Well, actually, fine. If you said, well, actually, it, it, it was exactly that. In fact, I mean, I've had it, I've, I've heard actors describe since the exact thing that I went through. And I thought, oh, God, I wish I'd known this was just pretty normal because at the time, you know, you think you're kind of losing your reason. There's a terribly common thing for actors to suddenly be uh, going on stage and thinking, oh, my God, I don't know the lines. And you find yourself going through the lines and thinking, how am I doing this? We have a very famous actor over here called Sir Derek Jacobi who described the same thing. Um, a lot of actors never appear on stage because of it. They'll do film work. Um, so I suppose analogy myself is, you know, I'll do session work, but I never wanted to go on stage again because I just didn't trust myself. I always feared it would come back again. Right. And, and, and I, think, I think the other point, to be honest, if I'm really, really brutally honest, I think I began to feel as well when I came back to it with the geese of the ghosts that I was... Um, you know, I didn't really see myself as being a kind of, I sort of, I began to see myself as, as, as equally much a composer, I think, as, as an artist. And, and obviously the, 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 there was no, there was never any, um, real incentive to actually go out on the road. There wasn't the encouragement to do it. You know, people weren't saying, oh, you're going to break this out. I mean, taking the geese and the ghost on the road would have been a joke because it would have been incredibly complicated to do. That would have been a lot of, a lot of people to pay and a hostile audience at the time. So it's sort of almost academic, really, because at that stage, it, at the stage where it mattered in terms of earning a living, there just wasn't the audience. I mean, if you were a Genesis or a Floyd, and actually, now Floyd sort of managed to avoid the flat, but if you were a Genesis or Queen and all the others that were kind of turned on by the nasty press over here, they survived. But I mean, they had horrific press a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of the medium to lower acts were just, you know, sized in half. And so many, so many famous prog bands just gave up because they couldn't, they couldn't sustain it. So from that point of view, it was kind of academic, really. There wasn't the encouragement to go back on the road. So it never really sort of came up, really, to be honest. So I then started diversifying into library music, which became my major breadwinner. 
And at that point, obviously, the question of sort of going back on the road and rehearsing for months and sort of, you know, because well, the music is quite complicated, for, for not very much money was just, just out of the window, really. Right, it didn't make sense. So, so is your is your career now sort of a nice compromise? Because I can see you at you know fourteen, fifteen, saying, "Boy, I'm going to be a rock star." Then you become a rock star, and you go, "Yeah, well, that's not exactly what I was hoping for." Uh, is this sort of that way to still be musically creative and still put stuff out and not have all the the downside of get on a stage and you know go go shake your bonbon for the crowd? Yeah, well. I think so. Yes and no, really. I mean, the first thing you said was that, you know, I, I became a rock star. I certainly didn't become a rock star. By the time I left, we were known by so few people. We we played and we played we played to an audience of one in a South London pub once. And Peter Gabriel said, any requests? I mean, a lot of the gigs when I was with them, we were by no means rock stars. So, yes, it's true that I was probably the principal driver, along with Mike, for wanting, because I was in all the early school groups. Um, um but then later on, I suppose um, I, I miss out. I do miss out on the, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I do miss out on the, the feedback from the audience and the adulation from the audience. And I, I'm very aware of that. And I do miss that. Um, I'm happy to avoid the, some of the rigors of the press reviews. But, you know, when you, when you release albums, you're still putting your head above the parapet, getting it ready to, sh- to be shot off. So, you know, I'm still, I'm still, um, uh, <clears throat> I have a profile with the press. So I, it's not like I, I'm a, I, I've completely left that. And I think, I, I, you know, as I said, I think I do miss out because I don't get that feedback with the audience and the, and the adulation, which can obviously inspire your performance. And I, I, yeah. so, so there is a certain amount of regret on that. I think Given my temperament, I think it is, you know, the restrictions of my temperament, if you like, I think it is a good balance. And I feel very lucky and very blessed to A, have been very lucky with library music, but also to have had a devoted following of fans who who um, make it worthwhile me sort of keeping going on the record side. Yeah, and and I see that too. Um I just want to get back on on the live thing, and then I'll move on because uh, I don't want to beat it uh, too, fine, too fine. far down. But but I, as I was listening to the answer, and 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 I hear you saying, "Well, it's going to be too complicated to bring out there and perform." Is that just sort of a rationalization to not bring it out there? Could, could you not sort of strip it down and make it simpler and and still put it out there, or is it just better to say, "Well, I can't perform it live, so therefore I won't." Well, I mean, I've got, as you know, I've got very natural misgivings about it because of what happened before about my, you know, the, the, the stage fright is something that, that, that I don't feel has ever, ever resolved because it's not really been put to the test. Um, I, I, and, uh, you know, I've, I sort of fought shy of that. Um, in answer to your question, you could do a stripped-down version, yes, of course, of some of the stuff. Um, if you did the more song-based stuff, you could do it. Or if you did an acoustic tour, say with my friend Kike Barro Garcia, of course I could do an acoustic-based tour, um, you know, like Steve does, Steve Hackett does some of the acoustic-based tours. Um, but, I mean, to do something like Slow Dance and Geese and the Ghosts, there'd be no point in doing a strip back because, you know, it just wouldn't be the piece. It's like, it's like a score, isn't it, really? You'd start taking all the instruments out. Uh, there's a big hole there. So... Um, yeah, couldn't couldn't do the bigger stuff certainly. 
There has been in the last uh, 30 years uh, different times where there's been Genesis reunion talk. There's the Together in a Park documentary, the Six of the Best show. And every time we come to that, you seem to be the one that's really stuck out <laughs> out of the picture. Is that somewhat disappointing or is that just, well, it is what it is. I mean, you know. Well, I'm not really aware of that, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I always turn up and do these things. Um, I never watch them, so I, don't, I can't. You're, you're telling me how I come across. I don't really know. People tend to, tend to tell me I come across quite well. Um, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 uh, I was very grateful to them because obviously I made a, I made a certain amount of money from them early on. Not a lot, but a certain amount of money from them, which certainly did help uh, when I was sort of getting going and struggling to start with. The mic was instrumental in helping getting the geese and the ghost going so you know there's a debt of gratitude there so it would feel it would have felt um um sort of dishonorable and sour grapes to say no um so i've always i've always turned up for these things but yeah it has got somewhat irking um the last one i did um was uh, tricky and the last one I was getting emails from people saying you know you've been airbrushed out of history and stuff and there were some knock-on effects from it so um, I have made a decision that I will not do any more Genesis based documentaries I won't do any more now which, which seems reasonable and uh, we'll, we'll finish on these two things here um, talk to me about the private parts and pieces uh, you've done many volumes or many albums worth. Uh, talk to me about that series and how, what sets it apart from just being another album? You know, why Private Parts 1, 2, and then 5? You know, why not just this is one album, this is one album? This, what's the, well, what's the uh, uh, Mitch, look, I was incredibly lucky because whilst other, other um, pr- uh, sort of prog acts, if you like, in inverted commas, we say that with the rest of it, were falling by the wayside, I was very lucky to be able to record after the Geese of the Ghost on Arista with the two albums Sides and Wise After the Event. And bless their hearts, um, Sides agreed to release with the first thousand, I think it was, of, of, of Sides an acoustic album. Because I'd stockpiled a lot of home stuff, which was, um, it had its fans, you know, it was rough technically some of it, but. Um, Private Parts and Pieces, and I must stress it was called Private Parts and Pieces because at that point there was no concept that there was going to be any more. One, two, three, four. It was just you know an acoustic album. And I was terribly lucky to be able to do that. What then happened was, when I was unable to do um, uh, full-scale albums for a while, that seemed a good um, and a necessary... Um, brand, if you like, in modern parlance, to kind of show that this next album, oh, guys, look, this isn't, sorry, this isn't a, you know, a, a, a geese with a guess, this isn't a, a size. Um, it's a, you know, it's, a not, it's, it's an acoustic album. This is what I'm able to do, but I hope you like it. And so that was the point. It was the point was to differentiate between the home vibey albums um, and the, the major studio ones. And, and so therefore that discrepancy has kept up just as we have a series called missing links which tended to be the library best of library or the best of tv scores but i do stress i was very very lucky uh being able to do that and i mean it was incredible in in 1990 when 
suddenly, uh, for, in, out of the blue, my, my CDs were being reviewed favorably. I remember they were in, in um, um, I can't remember the magazine now, they, re- they reviewed sides, re-release of sides, Geese the Ghost, some private parts and pieces, one, as we now call it. They gave sides two stars, Geese of the Ghost three. <laughs> they gave private parts of pieces four, including the line, there are tunes on this that Mike Oldfield will kill for. So I just remember thinking, wow, you know, wasn't I lucky to be able to get a release for that at a time when most other people would have been shown the door with that stuff. Yeah, and and, and it's nice to see that you're still releasing stuff. Um, and then I guess we'll just finish. Uh, any any thoughts on those those first two Genesis albums, from Genesis to Revelation and Trespass? Well, I mean, I, I, I suppose a sort of um, inevitable kind of discrepancy and paradox, really. Greatly enjoyed the first, absolutely loved it. Um, you know, all the Genesis stuff that went on in 67 as we started in 68 was great fun and feud, you know, um, infused with the um, enthusiasm and uh, um, change the world attitude of youth. Um, but it's pretty rough. Um, it wasn't helped by Jonathan King's mixing the backing track to mono in order to put the strings on, but that is for another discussion. But it was my songs, probably not terribly well played and incredibly well arranged. Uh, fast forward to Trespass, um, a much better album in terms of the playing. I mean, completely different kettle of fish, much more mature, a band with more of an original style. Although I think you know, Geezer still has some has has a you know, individual quality about it. But obviously, um, as I've implied, um, just partly because we've been we've been bashing it to death for seven or eight months on the road. By the time we did it, it was very much more the artisan, artisan sort of workmanship stuff. Go in the studio and record this. We—I went to be fallen out of love with these songs, but we were just doing them every single night on the road. We didn't have time to rehearse. I think from about well, the last six months of being on the road, we we had one new song because our music tended to be quite complicated, or we didn't got more complicated. We just didn't have the time to rehearse new material. So when it came to the album, we just did the live set. And so the live set was quite, um, yeah, it was workmanlike stuff to us. Whereas when we did from Genesis to Revelation, it was all sort of written, recorded over a period of seven or eight weeks. So you're in love with it, you know. I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing. Like an album, you know, an album you do in four or five weeks, you're probably going to love. An album you spend seven or eight, seven or eight months, you're going to end up hating to start with. Uh, I, I can see that, and, and a lot of bands get into that sophomore jinx where you have, you know, your entire life to write the first album, and you've got six months to write the second one, right? So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you run out of it. Um, a great pleasure. Um, thank you very much. Look, look forward to doing this again someday. Thanks, Max. That's great fun. Thanks very much indeed. Great. Cheers. Bye bye then. Bye bye now. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And there you go, folks. Uh, Anthony Phillips. Great stories. So Steve Hackett, Anthony Phillips. It has been all Genesis today. Prog rock. Because we are talking rock here. So we talk all kinds of rock. Not just heavy metal. Not just hair metal. We, we talk all rock. And uh, speaking of all rock, let us get a little bit of Canadiana into this. Um, Bruce Coburn has been active musically, professionally, if you want, since 1967. So 50 years in the making. Just unbelievable career. His uh, latest album is called Bone on Bone. His first album 
which appeared in 1970, was simply called Bruce Coburn. Uh, I got to know Bruce, and you'll hear this in the interview, mostly during the 1980s, thanks to much music playing, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, and If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Just absolutely uh, wonderful albums from from back in those days. Uh, Definitely worth checking out. He's... You know, he's he's just put together these great, great, uh, you, you know, you want to call them folksy or whatever, but great, great stuff. But, uh, you know, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, such a classic song. And uh, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, you know, there's a there's a Canadian band out there right now, or a band of rockers that are in Slash's band. Um, you think of Todd Kearns and uh, Brent Fitz. They have a little side project called Toke or Toke, where they cover... Canadian songs. I would love to hear them do If I Had a Rocket Launcher. I think that's a song that needs to be brought back to the forefront. Just such a such a powerful visual on the video, especially. Um, anyway, uh, Bone on Bone is the new album. We talk about that and all kinds of other stuff. So here is Canadian icon, the one, the only, Bruce Coburn. We are speaking with singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. The new album is Bone on Bone and... He is soon to be inducted into Canada's Songwriters Hall of Fame. Welcome, Bruce. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be with you. Yeah, great pleasure. And uh, I know that you're you're calling from uh, the car of all places, uh, so so this will be uh, yeah. Even, it'll be even. I mean, I'm I'm parked by the curb in the in the Marina District of San Francisco, <laughs> and uh, and I'm calling you on my iPad because my phone died yesterday. So, uh, there but you go. but that's it. That's rock and roll. I mean, you you got to go on, right? The show's got to go on. You got to get it done. So, uh, great spirit Thanks. there. So, uh, let me talk to you about Bone on Bone first. It, it is the first album since um, Small Source of Comfort. So seven six years ago, I guess now 2011. Talk to me about the motivation about writing a new album because I know that you know you've you've been putting out albums since the seventies. You had uh, the Rumors of Glory book and box set. You know why not just sort of sit back on the laurels and say, "Hey, I got forty years of songs. I don't need eleven more." <laughs> you always need more. Yeah, um, you know it's a, it's really where the life is. I mean, I'm happy to have all the songs I've written. But uh, but it you know it would feel weird to have it stop there. I mean, unless for some reason, you know, it was clearly meant to be. If I become incapacitated, or you know, I thought maybe at the end of the book because I mean you you mentioned the memoir and and that took a number of years to write. And during that period, I didn't write any songs, so I wasn't sure when it was over if I would be a songwriter again or if I should think in terms of trying to write more prose. But uh, but the songs started coming, and I'm I'm very glad they did. Uh, it's it's what I'd rather be doing. Yeah. So so talk to me about the the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame because it 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 occurs to me having followed your career over these last well I mean I sort of discovered you in the in the 80s with you know if I had a rocket launcher and lover in a dangerous time but you never seemed to me to be somebody who was writing for the glory or for the fame or for the money or for it, it always seemed to be more of a personal thing. Um, does something like the Songwriters Hall of Fame have a meaning for you, or is it nice to be recognized, or is it like, meh, you know, that's not why, that's not why I did it? Well, I, I, both are true. I mean, I don't feel eh about it, but, um, but you know, I, I don't write uh, or perform, for that matter, uh, with awards and honors and that sort of thing in mind. I, I, I feel like I have something I want to share with people. 
and that's the prime motivation behind writing. I suppose I have the audacity to think that I have things to say that people will enjoy hearing, or at least appreciate hearing. Uh, but um, you know, that's that's really where it comes from. At the same time, as that's true, it's very nice to be recognized, and and uh, you know, obviously, it, an event like this not only is a personal honor. It's you know, it helps get the word around that there's a new album out, that there's that there's music for people to hear who might not be familiar with it, etc. So, uh, you know, it's it's helpful in that sort of way. But but uh, for me, mainly, it's it's it, it's just nice to be recognized. It really is. Um, talk to me though about your songwriting process because there has been you know a spirituality to it and an activism to it where you, you, you talk about indigenous people and different causes. Uh, why did this songwriting go that way? Why not just sort of do like Motley Crue and write about girls, girls, girls? Why was it important to have a message, a tangible message? Uh, it always felt to me that if you're going to bother putting words with music, the words might as well say something, which doesn't mean you can't write about you know, whatever gender <laughs> or, or, or love or any topic you want. But uh, but there should be some art to it, and um, and it, and in with all the topics that life offers, which are many, uh, is the thing are the things that we call spiritual or political or, or whatever. I mean, all the songs are personal. You 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 said that earlier, and and the it, it is true that I take a very personal approach to songwriting. The songs that people think are political, I mean, obviously have a a relationship to the political world, but they're not—they're uh, not ideological songs. They're songs that are a product of my own feelings about an issue or about a, a set of experiences, and um, and I'm trying to share that with people. You know, I'm not really necessarily trying to persuade anybody of anything. I mean, of course, you know, if if we feel strongly, all of us, if we feel strongly about an issue, we want to make people agree with us somehow. But uh, but that's a secondary concern, and really, it's it's more about just sharing. Look, this is what I experienced, and then once you've decided that that's what you're doing, then then you want to try and do it in in you know with as much artistry as possible. Has there has there ever been a time where where you thought about just sort of writing more frivolously and just saying, you, you know, just no message, just hey, let's party on a Friday kind of thing, or, or do you see, see that as more of a vapid kind of use of the, of the art? Well, I know people can do whatever they want. I, I don't feel drawn to doing that. I, I, I'm not much of a partier. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, a, I kind of joke with people sometimes because I'll, I'll be performing in a situation where, you know, people are enthusiastic and excited and it's like, you know, great, you know, here you are. Here I am offering you all these party songs, and, and which of course they're not. But well, there's some exceptions. I mean, the first couple of albums have some lighter, or first few have some lighter material, and currently too. I mean, the, the last album had, uh, uh, you know, called me back. A sort of silly song about my friend not calling me back. Um, I mean, there's a we've all experienced that sort of stuff, but there's room for for anything to be the subject of a song, basically. Um, but having said that, there's no reason to stick to the frivolous. If, I mean, I just, I'm just more interested in writing about stuff that's a little meatier, I guess. And I don't get 
I mean, maybe maybe that's not even the right way to say it. Maybe the right way to say it is I just don't think of funny songs very often. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I do want to sort of ask you about some of the, the discography, but I, I just want to finish on one last thing in, the, in terms of the songwriting. What is sort of the approach in terms of, of the text? Because I've, I've always seen you as sort of writing poems and then sort of singing poems, and, and that might be a, a terrible description of it, but... It, it never seemed to me to be sort of, I've written, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you approach it in terms of text? Is it, is it sort of words first, music later, or is it I write the music and then I try to make words fit into the to, to the beat? Sort of how do you sort of approach it in terms of... Option one. Option one, uh, okay. Yeah, it's the the words almost, almost 100% of the time the words come first. And, um, I mean, there might be some overlap if I get a verse... I might find music that carries the verse, and then I look for words that will match it. Often I write with a kind of rhythm in my mind, not not with music per se, but there's a rhythmic element that I that I imagine uh, when I'm writing words. But but um, it really starts there, and it started that started with the love of poetry that I discovered when I was still a kid in public school, when we started getting interested or introduced rather to. Uh, to poetry that had substance to it, like instead of just kind of rhyming doggerel that you got when you're little, um, you know, we got exposed to what I consider to be the real poets, the, the T.S. Eliot, and that that uh, you know, not not to malign Robert Service because Robert Service was great in, at what he did, for instance. I mean, if we want to look at Canadian poets, but uh, but Robert Service is only interesting to me to a certain point, like that style of poetry. Right. Uh, when I discovered a more abstract uh, kind of writing that left more to your imagination, I was really carried away by it and became very uh, much you know, attracted to that kind of writing, to reading that kind of stuff, and, and then to writing it. So I was trying to write poetry, and I was trying to compose music, and then... I suppose to oversimplify, along came Bob Dylan, and you know, showed we all, us all that you could do both at once, and uh, in a way that I hadn't, you know, thought of at all. So the, you know, and at around at that time, a lot of people were trying to write songs that had some kind of some substance to them. Some better, some did a better job of it than others. Right. But um, but that then that's the period that was formative for me is starting to write songs and so I you know came under that influence and uh, it, it like I said if you if the words aren't going to have anything to them you might as well just leave it as, as an instrumental piece because uh, there's lots of room in the world for that too so that's that's kind of the governing principle <laughs> Right. And, and and I've always jokingly said uh, that instrumentals are just unfinished songs because they don't they lack lyrics. So. <laughs> well, some people feel that way. I don't. Actually. No, I know. <laughs> but people who listen to me have always heard me say that, it, it, even though it's just sort of nonsensey thing kind of say. Um, in the Falling Dark, the album that came out in '76, that that was sort of the watershed moment. That 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 change from what you were doing on Joy Will Find a Way and the albums before it that were that were more sort of minimalistic. Um, was that just a question of, I just want to do something different musically, you know, the Beatles experiment and all these bands, you know, we experiment. Was it like, Hey, I want to be a pop singer now and I want to have more of a, you know, I want to be on the billboard charts. 
talk to me about that album and what was sort of the motivation to, to I don't want to say change musical directions, but sort of just make it a little beefier, if you want. Well, yeah, well, for me, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that it strikes you that way. I, the, the, what I remember about approaching that album was that I felt like I'd learned enough, like, like I'd become competent enough on the guitar by that time to actually get musicians who I really respected, uh, jazz musicians, actually, is what I mean by that, to play with me. I'd had other musicians play with me who I also respected. That's not not really the way to say it at all. But but I was intimidated before this at the idea of having jazz people involved because I just didn't feel like I, I could measure up to what they were doing. And by the time we got around to, to uh, In the Falling Dark, I still didn't feel like I could play jazz, but I felt like I could do what, my own thing well enough that, that, that I would get respect from them. And I think that I probably you know, waited longer than I needed to, to hit that point. Cause I think there, there was already a certain amount of respect out there, but, uh, but that was what I remember about the, the choice of casting for that album. And, um, I had worked with some of the people before and then, and, uh, uh um, because on, you mentioned Joy will find a way that that album has some other people playing on it. Kathy Moses on flute, for instance, and, uh, some of the Toronto jazz people, but it got it got more that way with In the Falling Dark. Um, I think, for me, it really, when I felt a resistance to myself being typecast and I wanted to change things was actually the, a couple of albums earlier with Night Vision, uh, which was, a, in certain ways, a reaction to, you know, three albums being out and... and um, getting seeing myself written up in newspaper articles as a kind of back to the land nature guy and whatever which I was okay but it's, that was sort of somewhat relevant to what I've done but I had I felt like I didn't want to be typecast like that so I I we kind of went uh, right. you know I started wearing my old high school brown shoes and I and I cut my hair short and <laughs> and I and uh made an album that had you know had drums on it um but uh, but and that that kept going and it, by the time we got to in the falling dark that was sort of a, a fuller expression of that same tendency without the rebelliousness because you know what I discovered in rebelling against the early image was that I got the image of somebody who was rebelling against the early image and then I had to rebel against that and it all got rather boring so I, I dropped the whole idea but uh, but um, the uh, in the falling dark for a long time was. And it maybe still is the the best single expression of what I was about in the '70s, other than maybe dancing in the dragon's jaws, which was at the very end of the decade. But right. but I, I feel pretty good about the end of Falling Dark album, both as a songwriter and as as somebody making a record. Yeah, and and it, it certainly did bring a, a a greater awareness, unless I'm mistaken, to to what you were doing. Um, now the one where. I first heard of you because I'm a little bit younger, but the one I first heard of you was Stealing Fire. Um, and of course, uh-huh. you know, sitting around in my teenage years watching much music, you see the video for Lovers in a Dangerous Time. You see if I had a rocket launcher, which in itself visually was a very impactful, at least to me, because, you know, you never, first of all, you never heard the word son of a bitch would die on TV back in 1980. 
four, I guess it was. <laughs> no. Um, you know, that, that was very taboo and very sort of risque. Now you say it and people go, really? That's nothing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that album because that, that's the one that's, to me at least, uh, you know, introduced you to another new um, record-buying public. And it was also yeah. one where, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but now you had to put your songs to video and, and, and have a storyboard. Was that a very sort of different experience to go, hey, wait a minute, it's not somebody conjuring up an image in a mind. I have to sort of provide them an image. Was that sort of perverse to what you were doing? No, it was very interesting at first. Okay. It, it became perverse when it became clear that 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 the medium of music videos was going to become nothing more than commercials for albums, but but uh, and that they were all they got to be approached that way. But in the beginning, when it was a brand new medium, it seemed like it had all this potential to combine visuals and music in a in a really interesting way. So, uh, you know, I'm not particularly happy with the the Lovers in a Dangerous Time video. I think that's the first one we did, and it, you know, it looks to me like the first one we did. Uh, rocket launcher came out better and uh and they they continued to kind of improve with some ups and downs it the the hard thing about videos is involving so many more people and some more so many more different aesthetic senses and uh and tastes so you know it it becomes a big exercise in negotiation as to which way we're going to go with this i suppose if i made my own videos and declared myself producer slash director uh, I could just hire people and do it. We'd all do it my way, but I don't think that I have a gift for that particularly. So it wouldn't be. I don't think I'd like the results. But uh, but there was always, you know, sometimes you got luckier than other times with the people you worked with, or just. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that anybody was not good to work with, but just, you know, a, a certain level of empathy that you find with some people and not with others. Um, but uh, that. Um, that uh, you know, it was it, it was it, it was a, an interesting, like I said, a, a more challenging medium because of, because it was unfamiliar. But you know, I liked movies for a long time too, and the idea of having little movies that went with songs. I remember having an idea for that in 1970 when I was doing the music for for the film Going Down the Road with Don Shabib. Uh, I remember saying to Don, you know what, we should make like little three minute movies out of songs we could do something really neat with that. And he kind of looked at me and he went, I don't think any, any real director would ever want to do that. <laughs> that was 1970. Wow. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, I, I took him at his word. I never thought about it anymore. But then when the eighties came around and the, you know, it was a, it was a thing that people were doing. It was uh, okay. Well, now we can do this. And it was fun to explore, but after a while it got to be, you know, you, you, you got, it got too, uh, to Madison Avenue or something. It got to be too yeah. there were too many too many people that weren't involved. You you had to answer to networks. You had to answer to uh, you know not just that it wasn't just a discussion between me and a director anymore. And 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 that it ceased to be fun at that point. And um, you know in the states, I mean, if I had a rocket launcher, got a lot of play on on MTV in the states, uh, and it was the only video of mine that ever did <laughs> because after that, they, once they figured out that they were, uh, you know, heading more in a lifestyle direction and that they were, 
you know, they could do better, sell more advertising with a certain kind of video. They went with that and, you know, they weren't interested in me. But there was a window there when everybody was kind of experimenting with the medium uh, where I got to to be out there, too. But anyway, I mean, it's still an interesting medium and you could still do neat things with it. And I think if I were more plugged into the art school scene um, or the film school scene, I would I'd, it'd be fun to work with you know, young imaginative people who who were just thinking about how to make a cool video and not how to sell something. Yeah, and, and it, 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 the videos did at some point sort of just become product and, and not, you know, expressions of the art, which, which you know, sort of bothered me. And I, you know, in the 80s, I was a, you know, hair metal guy, you know, rat and poison. And, and you could see it sort of degenerating into this is just like a Pepsi commercial by, by the time we got to 1989 kind of thing. Um, spirituality has always been very important. Um, talk to me about having that and, and, and the importance of getting it out through songs. You know, is spirituality something that should be more personal or is it something that definitely should be shared? Well, it's another aspect of life. It, to me, uh, if I think of songwriting as an art, which I do, uh, the the targets of art or the subject matter for art is life, all, all in all its aspects. Uh, so, you know, spirituality is as much a part of that as sex and rock and roll and <laughs> playing dice and and uh, you know looking at a beautiful landscape or whatever i mean or the political for that matter it's all part of the human experience and it and therefore it's all suitable material for songs and and i happen to be interested in that aspect of life and so it shows up in the songs a lot it really does and we'll finish on this the uh rumors of glory the uh, the memoir to me is is a very interesting piece because not only does it sort of get into your mind and 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 you know tells your story but you combined it with a 117 song box set that sort of weaves its tail through the music you can put the book down and put the box set on and it's sort of, um talk to me about that project of sort of combining the music and the book and how you know what kind of experience was that to sort of tell the story through song and through word well the the song part was the easier of the two <laughs> um it, there was some decision making went into the choice of songs to to talk about in the book but the box set was basically just all the songs that are mentioned in the book that, that's that, that, so that was easy to you know sort of put that together uh there's of course uh, we also included a video and we also i mean a concert video and we also included the, the an, an album of so-called rarities rarities in the yeah. box, uh which you know was some different versions of some older songs and some demos and things and songs that had never been released uh that we had a few of around so you know that fleshed it out but the basic premise of the box set was to to put all the songs that are mentioned in the book together in one place um and you know, I, I, it was fun actually to think of it that way, and it, and it gave me a kind of different take on the songs to to hear them juxtaposed the way that the box set required. Um, they're basically, I think we've got out of order on one song, but they basically appear in the on the CDs in the box set in the order in which they appear in the book. 
Yeah. Uh, so you could, and if you were <laughs> obsessive enough, sit there and read the book and like and play the CD uh, as you got from song to song in the book. But the, the premise of the book was, uh, well, it came from the publisher that HarperCollins approached me about writing uh, a memoir that they described as a spiritual memoir. And I, I said, we're sitting in a bar in San Francisco at this point, and I said, we want you to write a spiritual memoir. And, well, what is a spiritual memoir? Well, we don't know, but we think you can write one. So, uh, so uh, that, you know, I, I accepted the challenge and, and, but that, the fact that it was, that, that was the beginning of the book, um, colored the choice of songs that, that got talked about in the book. And of course it I means some, you know, spirituality is a very broad topic and it touches on all other aspects of life. So, you know, it was not inappropriate to include songs like if I had a rocket launcher in the book. Right. Uh, but, but it, there was a lot more attention paid to to the songs that are specifically about spiritual things uh, than a different kind of book might have had, for instance, and therefore the box set is shaped that way too. And and so just to finish then, uh, the, the book, was it cathartic, exhaustive? And does it mean that there's a second book in you because the story hasn't been told completely or has the story been told completely? Uh, well, the, the book ends in twenty in two thousand and four, so there's some, you know I'm still around, so there's conceivably more story to be told. Whether I'll ever get around to it uh, in the time allowed, I don't know. But and and nobody's clamoring to have me write volume two at this point. But um, but it might it could happen. Uh, the book was I wouldn't call it cathartic exactly. It was certainly. Uh, instructive in a certain way because of the need to kind of go back over everything and it was enjoyable mostly uh for the same reason that it was you know like putting the past in a kind of perspective uh that was interesting a lot of hard work uh which it would be one reason why i might not do it again <laughs> but um but uh and very different from writing songs I mean, you know you write a song and it's a over in a matter of hours, whether the hours all happen in one shot or whether they're stretched over a period of time, still, you know, you're only working on a song for a few hours, but the book took three years of pretty solid work. Uh, and so that's, that's a whole different kind of experience that was at times exhausting and at times exhilarating. And, uh, you know, I, I might take the shot at it again but i don't know there's no no current plan for that yeah and, and that's when you realize there's a big difference between songwriter and author because it's it's a totally different craft and and it's you know yeah yeah <laughs> uh of course the new album is bone on bone uh, bruce uh, a great pleasure and uh, by the way just thank you for those memories in the 80s uh, th those videos on much music even though they're they were videos and stuff they they really just sort of touched a chord and and you know hey great stuff Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, thank you for everything. All right. Nice talking to you. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share.